Welcome to the February 9th edition of The Dish Show. Today we're going to talk primarily about the House Committee that's investigating the terrible events of January 6th of last year. Um, we're also going to take your comments and talk about them, and some of the comments are about the vaccine mandate and about other things. So we'll have a very full show and a very interesting show, and I, I welcome your comments. Some people have written to me and say, how do we comment? Well, it's very easy. You just go to the bottom of the screen, and there's a place that says, fill in the comments, type in the comments, so just type in the comments, and I will read them. I'll read the good ones and the bad ones, and no censorship here on the on the Dirt Show. So let's start with the events of, uh, of January 6th. Uh, it's divided into a lot of different component parts, and they shouldn't be lumped together. The president made what I regard as an ill-advised uh, speech. It was not an illegal speech. It was protected by the First Amendment. Uh, we should go down to the Capitol and protest peacefully and patriotically. He had absolute right to say that, just as labor agitators and communists and, and fascists and you name it, um, have a right to protest in front of the Supreme Court, in front of Congress, they're entitled to, uh, to uh, protest. I don't think the president was well advised to make that speech, especially if he had any inkling of what was going on down at the Capitol. He certainly learned about it later. Should he have done more? Shouldn't he have done more? Those are fair questions uh, to ask. Then we get to the Capitol, and you can't consider this all monolithically. There are people who went there peacefully and patriotically to protest. Do I agree with them? No, I think the, I think the election was relatively fair. I don't think the Pennsylvania results were fair. I'm on actually the other side of the Pennsylvania results, but I do think the rest of the results were fair in that President Biden was fairly elected president. So I wouldn't have participated in the demonstration myself, but people have a right to do that. And I have a client who I'm representing now, a law student, who went there to peacefully uh, protest. He just thought the election was unfair, and he thought that the vice president should take whatever role he can take and look hard at the election results and maybe send them back to the states. That's, that's democracy. I was on the other side of Bush versus Gore. I thought Gore should have done more to protest the outcome of that election, and I thought the Supreme Court was wrong, and I would have joined a protest against the Supreme Court in, in, in Bush versus Gore. So there are those who just, just stood outside and participated in a First Amendment-protected right to peacefully assemble and protest uh, and petition the government for a redress of grievances. It fits exactly into the words of the First Amendment. Then, on the other extreme, was the group that was determined right from the beginning to break the law, break into the Capitol, get on the floor of the Senate, get on the floor of the House, and maybe do worse. Hang, you know, Pence. I, was that rhetoric? Was it real? We don't know. Thankfully, we don't know. It didn't happen. Uh, people were hurt. People were killed, tragically. So, you have those guys. They're bad guys. They should be prosecuted. They broke the law. They intended to break the law. They went there to break the law. They're like the people in some ways who in Oregon and other places tried to take over the courthouses, people on the left who tried to take over the courthouses, try to burn down buildings, try to do... Law violators should be prosecuted whether they're right or left, and the situation has to be the same. 
whether they are right or whether they are left. And then there's this intermediate group, and the guy I'm defending is somewhat in the intermediate group. He went there just to peacefully protest, and then he saw people going into the Capitol. He believed he was invited in by the police. The police said, you know, come in as long as you don't do violence. He went in. He did no violence. He didn't break anything. He didn't hurt anybody. Protested. Went up to the gallery of the Senate, said his thing. Uh, when he was told to leave, he left. So you got to break down the people who were in the protest into the component parts. You can't say there was an insurrection and all the ins. You know, there was a, a protest that some people saw as more than a protest, wanted to engage in violence. Some people saw it as a legitimate protest, and some people moved from one category into another. And it's the essence of the American system of justice that each individual must be treated completely separately based on what their intention was, what they did was, what the results of their action was, and that's what the rule of law is all about. And that's why, although I don't agree with the protests, I'm defending one of the protesters, and I'm also defending my pillow and Mike Lindell. You know, he is the guy on television who talks about his wonderful pillow. And I've slept on it. It's a good pillow. Uh, but I'm not here to advertise uh, Mike Lindell's pillow, nor am I here to agree with his, his views. I, I don't agree with uh, many of his views, but I do agree with his right to protest, Voltaire. Um, I disagree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. So I'm acting out of Voltaire in defending people who I don't agree with, but who had the right to do what they want to do. What I'm very worried about is that the House Committee to investigate December, uh, January 6th, which you know everybody wants investigated on both sides. People want to make sure the, the truth comes out. I'm afraid it's beginning to look a little like what I grew up with. I grew up with the House Un-American Activities Committee, and they would subpoena people, and they would subpoena records, and they didn't do it for purposes of passing new laws. They did it for purposes of harassing people, intimidating people, exposing them to public ridicule and shame, um, getting some people not to comply with subpoenas and thereby being able to arrest and, and, and prosecute them. Now, I'm not comparing the committee there with the Un-American Activities Committee in the sense of what their goals were. The House Un-American Activities Committee had no legitimate goal. Sure, it was fighting communism, and communism was much more serious at that time than it is today. People forget that in the early 1950s, Khrushchev said, we'll bury America. Cuba was in the hands of communists. Uh, Greece was, um, you know, Central Europe, Eastern Europe. We're all in the hands of communism. And China was communist. It really looked like the communists may have been winning. Um, and so there was fear of communism. There was fear among my friends and family of, of communism. But that didn't justify what the House Un-American Activities Committee did. They acted completely unfairly. What they did is they just exposed people. They brought them in front of television cameras and said, are you now or have you ever been 
a member of the Communist Party? Did you ever attend a Communist Party meeting? Did you ever associate with a communist, a fellow traveler, all that kind of thing? And of course, there were red channels where people were kept off, um, off television if they refused to testify, or uh, there was blacklisting. Uh, people committed suicide. Um, any of you saw the wonderful uh, movie, The Front, uh, with Woody Allen, um, uh, where, of course, uh, great writers uh, were blacklisted. They couldn't write. They had to get people to be their fronts, people to be their, you know, it was like the play you know, Cyrano de Bergerac, where you have the, the handsome Christian who is speaking to the Roxanne on the balcony, but uh, Cyrano, the guy with the big nose, he is giving the words, and that's what the front was. Uh, great writers couldn't use their own names to uh, write great movies, and some of the great movies that you still see today were written by uh, people uh, who were blacklisted, and uh, other people got the credit, but everybody now knows that you know Dalton Trumbo really did that, uh, but he couldn't put his name on it. So. We're not seeing quite that, um, but what we're seeing is, I think, very dangerous. I think it's very dangerous. This idea of subpoenaing the phone records through phone companies, through, you issue a subpoena not to Mike Lindell, he could protest, he could challenge it, but you issue it to Verizon, and you tell them, we want all of Mike Lindell's phone calls, text messages, etc. And then the question is, does Lindell have the right to... Uh, challenges after all a subpoena issue to Verizon. That's a kind of way of circumventing the Fourth Amendment, and um, it's wrong. Uh, the Fourth Amendment protects the right of privacy, and it protects the right of privacy, particularly of unpopular people, of people who are engaged in conduct which today is politically incorrect, particularly on the left. And so I'm very much opposed to that. I'm even more opposed, or equally opposed, to the people who are getting subpoenas, for example, Mark Meadows, he was the president's chief of staff. He's being asked to testify about advice he gave the president while he was chief of staff. And other people, so in today's New York Times, another guy is being subpoenaed for advice he gave the president. Can you imagine a justice of the Supreme Court being subpoenaed and being asked, or his law clerk being subpoenaed and being asked, what advice did you give your justice on abortion or on gun control? No, a justice has to feel free to have conversations with his law clerk that he knows will never be repeated. When I was a law clerk on the Supreme Court for Justice Goldberg, I learned things, obviously. I will go to my grave with those things. I'll never repeat them. I wanted to publish a memo that I had written to Justice Goldberg I had to get his permission. He gave me permission. I, I published it. It was against the death penalty, the unconstitutionality of the death penalty, which I wrote back in 1963. But the president, President Trump, didn't give Mark Meadows permission to disclose the conversations that he had with him. And, 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 and therefore, Mark Meadows has no right. Forget about whether he should do it or shouldn't do it. He has no right to disclose that communications any more than if I'm called and asked, what did the president tell me when I was representing him in front of the United States Senate in his impeachment? 
Even if I wanted to disclose what the president told me, I wouldn't be allowed to. It's the president's privilege, not mine. I'm just the lawyer. I'm the person who he spoke to. But I am not free to reveal what he said. Neither is Mark Meadows free to reveal, although he wasn't his lawyer, he was his chief of staff, and the Constitution, as interpreted, provides for executive privilege just as it provides for legislative and judicial um, uh, privileges. It's interesting the Constitution is explicit, much more explicit, about legislatures, uh, legislators. They can't be questioned for anything they did in front of the legislature and the legislature on the way there back. But um, um, presidents can. Um, maybe justices can. I don't know. It's not in the Constitution, but the courts have held that the president has executive privilege, that judges have judicial privilege. And so I think the House committee is abusing its responsibilities. First of all, it was not set up properly. Committees, according to the rules of the House, should be balanced between Democrats and Republicans. Democrats control the House now, but not by a lot, but they control the House. So whatever their proportion is, what, 52, 48 percentage, that's what the proportion should be on the committee. But no, the committee didn't pick any Republicans to serve on it who might be supportive of President Trump or not as strongly opposed to uh, the January 6th events as others. They appointed to what are called rhinos. Not my term. It's a term that's used by Republicans. Rhinos, Republican in name only, to people who generally uh, support the Democrats on issues of this kind. They're Republicans, and they want rhinos Republicans. Now, they're not, they're being told they can't be Republicans anymore, and they're being taken off committees, and they're being taken uh, out of caucuses and all of that, but they ran in one as, as Republicans. There are two of them. Um, there should be more, and it should be equally balanced, and the, 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 the Republican minority members should have the right of subpoena, uh, to subpoena their witnesses, the right to examine their witnesses, the right to equal time in, in, in making these difficult and, and, and complex and controversial decisions, but they're not. So this is a very partisan, very partisan anti-Trump um, committee. Um, I, I'm not here on behalf of Trump, believe me. I represented him. We won. That's over. I'm now a liberal Democrat. I voted for Joe Biden very proudly. I voted for Hillary Clinton. I intend to vote for whoever the Democratic candidate is next time around, as long as it's not Bernie Sanders or, or somebody on the hard, 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 hard left. And it depends on who's on the Republican side. So I'm not giving away my vote for 2024 or even 2022 although I always vote Democrat. So I'm not here on behalf of um, President Trump or behalf of the Republican parties. I'm here on behalf of the Constitution. I'm here on behalf of justice. I'm here on behalf of equal treatment. I'm here on behalf of the shoe on the other foot test. Would you want, if you were a Democrat, for a Republican-controlled committee to be acting the way this committee is acting? Would you be in favor of excluding people just because they didn't agree with your views, would you be in favor of using the subpoena power in this way? Would you be in favor of trying to compel the chief of staff of the president and others in the White House to reveal conversations 
that were confidential and that occurred between the president and the assistants. No, I, I, I don't think most Democrats would want to do that, but that's the way people think these days. Today, partisanship trumps principle. Um, I'm writing a book about it, uh, The Price of Principle, how hyper-partisanship today is much more important than consistency, principle, honesty, truth. Um, and I try to ask for the shoe and the other foot test to be applied to everything that's done uh, by the government, um, but but it's it's not being done. So watch carefully. Uh, apply your super scrutiny to what's going on in that committee. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. I don't care if you hate Trump or if you love Trump. It doesn't matter. What matters is the Constitution, the law, and fairness. And I don't think that what we're seeing out of the January 6th committee today passes the test of fairness, passes the shoe on the other foot test, passes the test of what we would like to see if it was the opposite. And it was the opposite not so long ago, 2000, that year, Bush versus Gore. Uh, there you had Bush being declared president by the Supreme Court and the Gore people opposing it. The difference is Gore gave in, as I think I said yesterday. Uh, Gore lost because of inept legal representation. His, his lawyers were terrible compared to the lawyers for uh, the Republicans. And, um, uh, and, and Gore himself deserved some of the blame for that. He gave up on some of the lawsuits. I wanted to bring a lawsuit on his behalf and on behalf of the voters of Palm Beach County because of the butterfly ballot? No. Um, you know, he hired various lawyers, fired them, substituted other lawyers. The Republicans really put together an effective legal team and they understood the court. They understood the lower courts and they won five to four. Maybe they would have won five to four even without good lawyers and maybe the Democrats would have lost five to four, even with the best lawyers. But it didn't help to have the lawyers they had, and it didn't help to make what I regard was uh, inept uh, legal arguments at various levels of the court. Uh, there were some good lawyers. There were some good lawyers, but there were not some good lawyers. And the Republican lawyers were just, just much better. And the Republicans, I think, wanted to win more. Uh, they had a team that they put together, um, headed by a very, very strong former Secretary of State. And uh, he won, but he could have lost. And uh, what we want to make sure is that elections are always fair and that we don't see a repeat of what happened on January 6th. Look, January 6th was a stress test of democracy. You know, we have stress tests on banks to make sure that they can survive a depression. This was a stress test on democracy. And democracy passed. It passed with flying colors. Congress resumed its deliberations. The American public did not support what went on uh, at the Capitol. Democracy won. Democracy prevailed. And so, although I wish we didn't have that stress test, um, every so often, as uh, Thomas Jefferson said, you need to have tests of the functioning of democracy. And that was a test, and it's a test that uh, that prevailed. 
30% of Americans still don't think the election was fair. And that's because we don't have in place the best possible system for determining the fairness of elections. And I talked about that yesterday, and I'll continue to talk about that. And there's legislation now being prepared. We need to be ready for the next election, and we need to be ready with a system that everybody agrees to and everybody agrees to be uh, bound by. That's the key. You can't allow rules to be changed after an election when you know that if you change it one way, somebody will win. If you change it the other way, somebody else will win. You have to not know who's going to win and lose when you change the rules. So uh, let's hope the next election doesn't produce another January 6th. But in the meantime, let's keep a very careful eye on Congress. Let's worry about the Congressional Committee of uh, looking into uh, uh, January 6th. Let's make sure that the Democrats don't become the McCarthyites of the 2022. Let, let's make sure that what we objected to when the House Un-American Activities Committee was in existence doesn't come to fruition with the January 6th uh, committee. So write to me, tell me what you think whether you're a Democrat or Republican, as I said, all you have to do is scroll down, and at the bottom there's a place that says, type in comments, just type in your comments, and I promise, no censorship. And now I'm going to follow through with my promise, and I'm going to read some of the um, comments that came through in the last uh, a few days. And uh, let's see, let's see what they say. Start with Gunner. While I agree with many of Allen's takes when it comes to free speech and censorship, he is absolutely on the wrong side of history when it comes to vax mandates. He even wrote a book, The Case for Vaccine Mandates. Uh, bear in mind also, this was published after the CDC admitted that COVID vaccines don't prevent transmission of infection of the virus itself. I'll read a couple more because they're, they're similar. Okay, this is from Matthew. This is weird. Um, we'll see a whole new Holocaust of the Jewish people in Israel soon enough, thanks to the Jewish entities pushing the clot shot at record levels there. There will be no one to blame other than themselves and their deceivers who know better or should know better. In other words, Jews are responsible for... Uh, vaccine mandates, and what does he call them, the clot shot, etc. A couple more along the same line. Dirch's loyalty lies with Zionists. Trump has him by the short hairs due to Dirch's activities on Epstein's island. Claims that he left his underwear on, but fails to explain why his pants were off. Dirch is the Fauci of the law profession. Boy, I wish I were. I, I like, I like, I like Fauci. I like him. Um, and, uh, but they call me the, the Fauci of the, of the law profession. Uh, okay. So let, let's talk about the vaccine uh, mandates. Um, any of you who've read my book or have heard me talk or who have read my articles about it know what my position is. I'm an advocate and admirer of John Stuart Mill, the great philosopher from the middle of the 19th century, and he said, the only way the government has the right to compel anybody to do anything is to prevent them from doing harm to other people. You can't stop somebody from committing suicide. You can't make somebody wear a seatbelt, he would say. 
Uh, you can't uh, ever do anything that's designed just to help the person himself. So, for example, if they were to come up with a 100% perfect vaccine that prevented all cancer, all heart attacks, all diabetes, Mill would say you can't make anybody take it because heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, cancer are not contagious, so you can't. But, he would say, if there was a vaccine that was 100% effective in preventing the transmission of a contagious, potentially lethal disease to other people, then you could make the person take the vaccination not to prevent harm to himself, but to prevent harm to others. So that's Mill's approach. And that's an approach I generally take. I put it very cutely once in an article in a book that I wrote saying you have the right to inhale cigarettes, but you don't have the right to exhale them at me. You can do whatever damage you want to your own lungs, but don't damage my lungs. Or the right to swing my fists ends at the tip of your nose. That's my approach. That's Mill's approach. I don't take it to its logical extreme. I actually do support seatbelt laws because they're so minor. $25 fines, $50 fines, not a big deal if you can save people's lives by making them be more sensitive to putting on their seatbelts. I'm in for it. But, uh, but I am uh, not in favor of making people take vaccines that would only prevent them from getting sick. And so the question becomes one of, of science. The question becomes one of science. Um, what does the vaccine do? My information is that although there is some question about whether or not the vaccine prevents the spread of Omicron to others, the science also supports the claim that if there's widespread vaccination around a whole country, the likelihood of spread is less and the likelihood of variants coming in or less. But that's a scientific fact. And if somebody could persuade me that's not the case, obviously, my philosophy would push in a different uh, direction. So um, let's let the science settle this. Let's let the scientists make the decisions here. And when there's scientific doubt, maybe we should err on the side of making sure the population is, is kept safe. Uh, you may have the right not to be vaccinated, but I have the right to know you're not vaccinated. And I have the right not to go to a restaurant that you're going to be in without being vaccinated, without being masked. And so I have to be able to make my decision as well. Uh, I'm not flying on airplanes these days because airplanes don't require uh, that a person present a vaccine uh, a certificate. So I'm making my choice. Um, I'm not going to fly on airplanes once they require everybody to show vaccination. They do require masking. Uh, I'll go back to airplanes. Uh, I won't go to a restaurant today that, um, that uh, uh, doesn't require um, vaccination certificates and, and masking when you're not eating. Obviously, you can't mask when you're eating. So I have my rights. You have your rights. The rights are in conflict. They're clashing. And this is very much an issue in flux. And I think most of us agree with the philosophy, the Mill philosophy. Government can make you do things if they will prevent harm to other people, but they can't make you do things that will prevent harm only to yourself. And then the issue is one of science. I'm involved in a debate virtually every day on email with one of my friends who's a brilliant, brilliant guy and who 
thinks the science goes the other way and we're fighting. He's sending me articles. I'm sending him articles. And, and uh, we'll, we'll see how this, this gets resolved. But <laughs> you'll remember that somebody couldn't resist um, 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 when talking about vaccinations. Dershowitz's loyalty lies with the Zionists, uh, you know, Epstein's Island, and it goes on. I have more and more of those. Uh, uh, you at Gitmo yet for being a friend of Epstein's? When are you going to hang for crimes against humanity? Um, and, and more. I can't believe Rumble showcases this lawfare punk criminal, let alone criminals who fall for his crap. 145,000 subscribers to Rumble for Dershowitz. What are you doing? So, you know, I'm not beloved by, by everybody uh, out there. The Epstein thing, of course, is a, a total phony. I was never on Epstein's Island when there were any young people. I was on there once with my wife and my daughter before uh, he uh, built the island up. Just it was me, him, and a couple of repair people and a, a couple of friends, um, mutual friends, um, a professor at Harvard. And I was never and during the relevant time at his ranch and never in, on any of the Lolita Expresses. All of it's totally false, and I had a shoulder massage, and my wife had a massage. Uh, so the, the, the story is totally phony. I never had any contact at all with uh, my accuser or anybody else. So um, if you want to believe it, I can't make you not believe it, but uh, it's just not true. So um, talk to me about the merits. Don't just write to me and call me names. That, that won't help. I'm going to read one more that's very thoughtful. Professor Dershowitz, will you please take a few minutes to help me understand the rules of free speech at the intersection of the public square and private property? I recall years ago when shopping malls were invented, the courts struggled to find the balance between the use of mall property by persons advocating for various causes, religious, political, and otherwise, and the property owner's interest in creating a pleasant shopping experience for their tenants' customers by controlling the speech on the common areas of the mall. I wonder whether these rules apply to social media or whether these rules might be modified to apply to social media. Will you help? It's a great question. It's a great question. I wrote a whole book about it uh, called The Case Against the New Censors, how you know the social media has become the, the censorship uh, medium of, uh, uh, of today. It, it, it's unresolved. Uh, private malls can prevent people from coming on it. They're businesses. They can stop people from recruiting and soliciting and, and, and being, and being uh, political. But there's a case, Marsh versus Alabama, which says that a city, small, tiny little town, that was established by a company, so it's privately owned. You can't move into that little town unless you work for the company. But it's this little town. And it has you know a little shopping mall. It has a post office. It has a little... Hospital, veterinary, whatever. And the Supreme Court held that if it looks like a town, if it walks like a town, if it smells like a town, it's a town and they can't restrict free speech. So you have cases going both ways on that. And I do think that the Supreme Court will have to soon, uh, with the help of legislation, resolve this issue. It would take legislation first. Let's assume that Congress passed the statute saying, Facebook, Twitter, Spotify, you're like the telegraph company. You're common carriers. And if you're common carriers and you control so much of the information, we are going to subject you to some government regulation. They're doing that in England now. And the question is, could they do it in the United States? And should they do it in the United States? Where do you stand on that? 
I don't know the answer to either of those questions. Um, I would have said 25 years ago, the Supreme Court would not uphold uh, regulating uh, private companies that have massive control over the media, other than through antitrust laws, perhaps. I would have said that. This Supreme Court is different. Uh, the time is different. Uh, the social media are, are different. And it is not beyond the realm of possibility that a carefully drafted statute constraining to some degree the social media might be upheld by this Supreme Court. I'm not sure. Would it be a good idea? Probably not. I still think the greatest threat to freedom comes from the government. And maybe it's even good for the private sector to compete with the government. Look, private sector competes with the government today in mail delivery, in currency, uh, in uh, the army. We have private groups uh, engaged in, in, in army activity. So we're seeing a lot of competition uh, with the government. So the answer to your absolutely brilliant question, it's a terrific question, I really love more of those, giving me an opportunity to really uh, discuss with you um, cutting edge issues in the law, is that, stay tuned, it's not a resolved issue. It's not a resolved issue under the Constitution. It's not a resolved issue morally. What would John Stuart Mill say about it? Not so clear. What is the civil liberties view? Probably against the government coming in and, and taking over. But what if the government put its light pinky of the law on the scale rather than the heavy thumb of the law? Let's continue to discuss this issue. So write to me, comment to me, say whatever you want. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it if you want me not to give your name away, if your arguments are so stupid that you're ashamed to give, put your name down. I'm okay with that too. But if you put your name down and you want me to read your name, I'm happy to read your name. So write to me every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday live at 5.30 every day of the week on Locals. I will give you my take on current issues. So please stay tuned, subscribe, and listen and watch The Dirt Show.